Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we saw last time, or two weeks ago, one side of the mediator's work to intercede for Israel. Today we see another side of it. Moses doesn't just intercede, Moses disciplines. Moses says, no, you will not commit idolatry in front of me. I will stop you. That, is, that too is the mediator's work. Verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. And the tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, Is not the voice of those who shout in victory, nor is it the voice of those who cry out in defeat, but the voice of those who sing that I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mediator. We thank you for your son who intercedes for us in our sin. We thank you for your son who chastens us in our sin and stops us from sinning. We thank you that your son casts out corrupt leaders and replaces them or causes them, brings them to repentance so that they no longer lead your people astray. Lord, show us your Son as our mediator. Help us to delight in the glory and beauty of Christ tonight. Give me the grace to speak boldly and powerfully with the anointing of your Spirit, who takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. We pray that he would be here with us. He would help me to tell your people your marvelous works in Moses and your more marvelous works in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we have three things in this text that stand against and confront idolatry. The first one is the law of God. We've got an extended discussion, two verses, describing the tablets of God's law, which, of course, uh, suffer an unfortunate fate. And then we've got uh, another verse on how the mediator confronts idolatry and chastens Israel for it as he breaks down the idol. And then finally, the last section describes how the mediator confronts the corrupt leader, the one who 
enabled the idolatry, who let Israel slide into idolatry, how the mediator puts a stop to that. God's law stands against idolatry. God's mediator stands against idolatry. The mediator destroys the idol and chastens the corrupt leader who enabled idolatry. Well, we start by looking at the law of God. We don't get a wide shot of Moses picking his way down the mountain. Verse 15 tells us Moses turned and went down the mountain. And this is, I think, the only time that we take a few minutes to just kind of walk with Moses. The camera doesn't show us Moses leaving the top and arriving at the bottom as it does every other time. As Moses goes up and down Sinai many times, typically it just says Moses went up and then in the next verse he's at the top. Or Moses went down and then he's at the bottom. But here it says Moses turned and went down. And as Moses is walking down, we get a tight shot of the Ten Commandments. The two tablets of the testimony in his hand. You'll notice that the narrator says twice, well he says two things about these tablets and he repeats those things two times. As if to say this is important. These tablets are important. Now, we know that they're important already. If you will obey my voice, you shall be a treasured possession to me above all families of the earth, God tells them in Exodus 19. God's voice has been literally written in stone in these tablets. We say all the time, oh, it's not written in stone. But this is written in stone. This is important enough to be preserved this way for all time. This is not written in pencil on the back of a napkin. This is carved in stone on two tablets, and the narrator tells us the tablets were written on both sides, and then he repeats it. On the one side and on the other, they were written. As if to say, it's important that both sides of the tablet is covered. God doesn't have just one or two little things to say. He's got ten things to say, enough to cover both sides of two tablets of stone. Now, he adds, the tablets were the work of God. Moses did not make these. Moses is not that crafty priest who goes up the mountain and then secretly writes laws that will make the people obey him. Coming down and says, oh, God revealed something to me. I think Joseph Smith, Mohammed, etc., the other charlatans in history. Moses is not that. The narrator tells us the tablets are the work of God, not the work of Moses. The writing is the writing of God not the writing of Moses engraved on the tablets. If you will obey God's voice as written on these tablets, you will be his treasured possession above all families of the earth. But the law, though it stands against idolatry, though it says no other gods, though it says don't worship graven images, it is not able to stop the idolatry with the calf. The letter kills. These laws have the power of destruction in every groove of every letter. But beyond destroying Israel, there is nothing they can do. Only the mediator can put a stop to sin and change Israel. We'll see that over the course of the story. Clearly, not only is the narrator telling us These are important. These are from God. He's saying, 
These are some of the most important artifacts you could ever find. And I saw a few years ago in Atlanta a motorcycle that had been ridden by Elvis Presley. Ooh, that's impressive, right? Or you can see a letter written by George Washington, a fresco painted by Michelangelo. There are these things from the past that people regard as important. But no museum has in any of its collections tablets written with the finger of God. You can't find them. Such a thing would be priceless in the vaults of the British Museum or in Egypt's National Museum of Egyptian Heritage and Culture. But Moses and Joshua are going to break these tablets. Why, right? The, the narrator focuses on the tablets enough that you don't need to be a scholar of literature to say, I think something bad is about to happen to these tablets. The way he plays up the importance of the tablets and repeats twice and then twice again what's on the tablets, where the tablets come from, you can know the tablets aren't going to make it. There's no way. And of course, in the event, we'll get there in just a moment, but there's another foreshadowing. Not only does the narrator play up the tablets, he introduces this question from Joshua, or this observation from Joshua, there's a noise of war in the camp. Now Joshua is a martial leader, maybe everything he heard he thought it was war. Moses appears to correct him and say, that ain't war, Joshua. But regardless, the, the literary function of this anecdote about it's not victory, it's not defeat, it's singing. Singing? The whole point is to foreshadow to the reader, this is going to be bad. Moses and Joshua are on their way down the mountain. They can't see what's happening in the camp. But from a distance, what they hear doesn't sound promising. Right? Now, we've already heard what God said describing to Moses what had happened. We've already seen the narrator's description of what Israel did. But even so, we put in Moses' shoes coming down the mountain as he and Joshua have this conversation about what it might be. Oddly enough, Moses doesn't apparently say, look, Joshua, God just told me they're worshiping a calf down there. Instead, they have this little conversation. It, it sounds like singing. It doesn't sound like war. Finally, verse 19, they arrive in the camp. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger became hot. As we noticed last time, Moses pleads with God, do not let your anger burn hot, verse 11. And now when Moses sees it in verse 19, his anger burns hot against what Israel is doing. There's Israel celebrating before the calf. What we can imagine is almost a National Lampoon parody of a Star Wars type festival. There's Israel doing their thing. Moses sees it. And he is angry, and the tablets go down. Why? The law can't stop sin. It can and will destroy sinners at some point. The law is powerless to stop sin. Powerless to reform sinners, right? I should say better, the God who wrote the law will destroy sinners based on the law. Those who sin against the law will be judged by the law. 
But Israel has broken the Ten Commandments, and so Moses symbolically dashes them to the ground to say, the covenant is over. What? It's as if George Washington and Ben Franklin walked out of the Constitutional Convention to see the citizens of Philadelphia kneeling before George III and swearing allegiance. What would they do? They turn around and rip up the Constitution. Never mind. There is no point in having this document anymore. That's what Moses is saying when he takes the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God, and hurls them to the ground. Forget it. If you will obey God's voice, you'll be His people. You didn't obey His voice. Your relationship with the Almighty is over. But though the law can't make sin stop, the mediator can, and he does. Moses does not take the gentle approach and say, all right, what did I do? Right, I failed to love you guys. I failed to meet your emotional needs, and now you're turning to an idol. He doesn't say that. Moses took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. Moses walks right up to the calf, pushes the thing over onto the altar, and there burns it up as fast as he can. Now, it's endlessly perplexed commentators, what exactly was this thing made out of that it could be burned and ground to powder? It's very hard, if you haven't noticed, to powder metals without large equipment, which Moses presumably didn't have in the wilderness. How did he take gold and turn it into powder? I, these people are probably overthinking it. Most likely, this was a wooden image plated with gold, like most idols of that era. Moses tipped it in the fire. Most of the gold burned off. What didn't was in the ashes, which he beat into a fine powder and threw in the water. We're told in Deuteronomy that there was one stream that came down from Sinai. Moses threw it all in that. That was the water source for the camp. So everyone then had to drink it. The mediator destroys the idol. The mediator punishes the Israelite. His message seems to be, eat your sin. You wanted this calf? Have the calf. Get it good and hard. Have it right inside your body where it will do you the maximum amount of good because, let's face it, an idol can't do anything for you whether it's up there on a pedestal or here in your guts. Be engaged in false worship, he seems to say, and be aware that you'll have to eat it later. Rather similar to our proverb, You've made your bed, now lie in it. Moses is telling them, you made the idol, fine, eat it. One of the Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs 14, 14, a perverse man will be filled with the fruit of his ways and a good man with the fruit of his deeds. A perverse man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. You wanted a false god? Have a false god. Consume your false god. Get him right inside you. Make him part of you. That's all the good this bull will ever do for you. What you do will influence what you get. In fact, the proverb seems to say, what you do will determine what you get. And if you worship a false god, you'll get that false god. So mediator stops idolatry by destroying the idol and making Israel 
eat the idol. And then Moses turns, as soon as that's done, he turns to the corrupt leader who let all this happen. Aaron was in charge of the camp alongside her when Moses left. And now Aaron has to face the music. What did this people do to you? Moses says, I don't see a black eye. I don't see you tied up. I didn't see you making any effort to stop the worship of the golden calf. In fact, he accuses his big brother of bringing this sin upon the people. Seems to be, well, we can think of Zechariah and towards the end of his book saying, and in one month I fired three shepherds. Something similar going on here is Moses almost says, Aaron, you're fired. You're not allowed to lead this people anymore. You brought them into sin. Moses deals with a corrupt shepherd who hurt the flock by leading them into idolatry. This is all too easy to do for those of us in positions of responsibility. We parents can let the children start sinning. Even empower them to do it hand them an idol, as Aaron did, and then say, oh, you know the people, they're set on evil, these are just bad kids. Like That's the route Aaron takes. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, you're right, Moses, I led them into sin. He's got an excuse. And his excuse is that they're just terrible people. You know the people that they are set on evil. Well, the people are not the world's best people, perhaps. But rather than saying, no, I won't make a God, Aaron said, yes, I will make a God. Give me your goal. He enabled idolatry. Pastors, elders, pastors in training, we can do this too in the church. Refuse to exercise authority. Just go along with the loudest voices. And then, when the people in the church go off the rails, say, no, it was just a lousy congregation. What rotten people. It's the case in every area of authority. In the home, in the school, in the church, in the state. You, the authority, lead those under your authority into sin and then blame them. Oh, they led me into sin. Well, sure, yeah, you followed them. It wasn't Aaron's idea up front to make a god. But as soon as the people suggested it, he was all over it. He was ready to do it. He built the altar. He announced the festival to the Lord. And his excuse just gets lamer and lamer. He shifts the blame. You know the people that they are set on evil. Then he quotes their request, make us gods, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. He quotes that as if to sort of subtly subtly say, or not so subtly, Moses, you weren't here. I'm helpless without you, Moses. It's all your fault. You went up the mountain. We're good at blame shifting. We love to do it. Not my fault. Your fault. You're bringing it up, fine. I'll tell you all the reasons it's your fault. 
And the mediator, of course, doesn't buy it. Uh, Moses, uh, Moses' commentary is not mentioned. You know, instead, the narrator tells us, Aaron has not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, in verse 25. And then Moses sends out the Levites to slaughter the idolaters. So, what's the point here? You can lead others to sin. And Aaron's, the lamest part of Aaron's excuse is the end. They gave the gold to me, I cast it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's completely ridiculous. Presumably Moses laughed out loud at that point. If he didn't just want to punch his brother in the nose. Aaron, come on, you're a grown man, you're almost 90 years old. And you're trying to tell me that you can throw gold in the fire and a calf comes out. We've all seen metal melted in the bottom of a fire. It makes a dumb little puddle. It doesn't make a calf. Or anything remotely resembling a calf. But Aaron doesn't want to say, yes, I led them into idolatry. Nor do we, when it's our fault as parents, bigger siblings, teachers, elders, wherever our responsibilities lie. The mediator, though, stands firm. He confronts Aaron. And he also intercedes for Aaron. Right? Both of these things are part of the mediator's work. We tend to have this idea that if he confronts, then he must not intercede. If he says, stop it, then he doesn't love the people enough to ask God to forgive them. Or if he's asking God to forgive them, then he doesn't go and tell them to stop it. But in the mediator, both these things are united. The mediator not only says, God, please forgive them, he then turns around and says, Israel, stop it. You are not going to do this under my watch. Christ is like that too. The law could not stop sin, but the mediator could and did. He crushed the golden calf. He turned Aaron away from his ungodliness. He rebuked the people and their leader. And he brought them back to the right way. And then he interceded for them with God and brought them forgiveness. That's how Jesus deals with us. He doesn't write us off. When we sin, he rebukes us. He confronts us, sometimes just in our own conscience. All of you, I trust, have experienced that. Sometimes through the voice of someone in authority over us, as with Aaron in this text, where your parents, your pastor, say to you, stop it. No, you're not going to do this. And sometimes, as we'll talk about next Sunday morning, it's through an equal or even an inferior, rebuking you and saying, no, don't do this. So we should worship the mediator. He's the one who does this. He speaks to his people and he speaks to God. He's a go-between. He goes to God and says, God, forgive them. He goes to the people and says, people, no, you may not do this. 
His anger is but for a moment. In His favor is life. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the glory of Christ and help us to imitate Him in His willingness to intercede for His people and seek their forgiveness, but also to discipline them and stop them in their sin. Lord, we pray for faithful leaders at every stage of the hierarchy, in every position, not Aaron's who will cater to idolatry, but Moses's who will stand against it. Give us these leaders, Father. Help us to be these leaders, to be faithful in our place and calling according to what you have for us. Give us the grace to exhort one another every day while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.